0: Stand aside, summer family. Get out of the way, Incredibles. Move out and make room for some truly dysfunctional super family hijinks. I'm your host, Michael Hancock, and you're listening to an episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academic minds into contrast with others. With me, as always, are my co hosts, Anna Papard and Andrew DeMann. Today, we'll be looking at two acclaimed Marvel books that cast a critical eye on superheroes and the families they create. The 2003 book Fantastic Four, Unstable Molecules, by James Sturm, with art from Guy Davis, and the 2016 Vision series written by Tom King and illustrated by Gabriel Hernandez-Walta. Later on, Anna will provide us with some theoretical background for the books, with Henry Jenkins' essay Just Men in Tights, rewriting Silver Age comics in an era of multiplicity. So stay tuned, get comfortable, and learn that even an android can mansplain things to his life partner. could you provide us some non-fictional back matter for Unstable Molecules?
1: Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules by James Sturm with Art Guide Davis is a critically acclaimed, but much to my regret, um, not especially widely read four-issued miniseries. Though it won the 2004 Eisner Award for Best Limited Series, it's currently out of print, which has prevented me teaching it in the past. Thankfully, though, it's now in comicsology. so if you haven't read it and you love superheroes or the Fantastic Four or just awesome comics in general, I'd strongly encourage you to spend a few bucks and check it out. The premise of Unstable Molecules is just a touch hard to explain, but I'll do my best. On the most basic level, the series reimagines the members of the iconic superhero team as inspired by real people within the lives of the creators of both this comic book series and the original Fantastic Four comics. So, Stan Lee appears in the story at one point, and in the first issue, Sturm claims that the series was inspired by his discovery of yellowed newspaper clippings in a family scrapbook about a pair of real-life war heroes named Johnny and Sue Sturm. These newspaper clippings are not real, this is just the central conceit of the series. The supposedly real people the Fantastic Four are based on exist in the late 1950s and are embroiled in the cultural contexts of that time. The series itself, and some supplementary materials included with each issue, link the real Fantastic Four to icons of the B generation, second wave feminism, the Cold War arms race, and on and on. The ways in which this premise interacts with the continuity and meaning of the Fantastic Four is really complicated and really smart, um, so the original Fantastic Four comics pioneered the kind of self-reflexivity the Marvel Universe has since become known for. Within the original Fantastic Four comics, the characters exist alongside the real Stanley and Jack Kirby, who are shown in early issues writing made-up adventures of the real Fantastic Four. Unstable Molecules further muddies the relationship between fantasy and reality. And Unstable Molecules were presented with actually multiple potential versions of who and what inspired the four. Superpowers never actually become real, but maybe they do. Unstable Molecules does suggest that superhero comics can reflect deep emotional truths, and, for better or worse, profoundly shape our perception of the world. The original Fantastic Four comics also pioneered putting character first in superhero stories. These comics were some of the first superhero comics where the heroes were flawed, angry, jealous, where they fought with each other, sometimes hated their powers, and even contemplated suicide. Unstable Molecules once again takes up this tradition, and exaggerates it in ways that also deconstruct it, and make us look at the original comics in a new light. In Unstable Molecules, Sue Sturm is invisible because of the same sexism that tended to sideline her in the original comics. Johnny Sturm's rebelliousness is situated within a possibly queer sexuality and the constraints of post-war suburbia. Van Grimm is monstrous because of his perfect combination of likability and misogynistic aggression. And Reed Richards is helpless to resist his research being co-opted by the military-industrial complex. Unstable Molecules is overall a fascinating series that you can read on its own or in conversation with the original Fantastic Four comics though since we're comic scholars and since I have a particular fondness for the original Fantastic Four, I imagine we'll be talking quite a bit about the latter in the discussion to come.
0: Thanks, Anna. And Andrew, could you tell us about the Vision, preferably in the form of a Shakespearean soliloquy?
2: Nope. Um, (laughs) I want to start by prefacing this with the fact that I do not like Vision as a character, Uh, and I find him really problematic within the sort of Marvel Universe. I see him as way too overpowered, one-dimensional, often preachy, uh, and with really vaguely defined powers, and a terrible costume design. Uh, When I heard that there was a new Vision miniseries winning all manner of acclaim, I kind of didn't care. If anything, my reaction was crap, now I have to read a Vision series. Uh, However, the story that ex-CIA operative Tom King Uh, And thick-lined Spanish sensation Gabriel Walta tells riffs pretty heavily on the Stepford Wives, featuring an android Avenger who is trying to hold it all together and decides to build his own nuclear family in the burbs, consisting of a teenage boy and girl, a loving wife, and eventually even a robot pooch. Unfortunately, Vision's past won't leave him alone, nor will the nosy community of neighbors who have a hard time accepting a superhero android into their community. Despite Vision's best intentions, things unravel fast and escalate faster, Throughout a story that raises any number of unsettling questions about artificial intelligence, the meaning of family, and the cycle of violence, whilst engaging with one of the more complicated backstories and continuities uh, of a superhero character. For my mind and money, however, this is easily the best superhero story Marvel has created in quite possibly decades. It lives up to the hype, uh, and I am very happy to declare myself one of Vision's converts. Given that these
0: books are so deeply rooted in Marvel history, uh, it would be maybe nice to start with our history, our history with these characters in terms of the Fantastic Four and in terms of vision. So um, out of all of Marvel's major properties, I think the Fantastic Four are the ones that have consistently failed to be adapted into a movie franchise. Yeah. That's interesting, right? Let's let's talk about these things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean... I love Fantastic Four, but I am definitely one of those people that's never loved anything, any run of Fantastic Four as much as the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four. Lee Kirby Fantastic Four is one of my favorite superhero comics of all time. Just the combination of sort of the humanness of the characters and the wonderful fantasticalness of the world that Kirby brings to it in every single panel, where they'll be having breakfast and there'll be some wonderful thing going on in the background. I mean... I think I brought up in conversation with you guys before, just an issue where they arrive home and it has nothing to do with the story, but Reed's tiny zoo animals have escaped and they have to collect them all over the course of a splash page and several panels before they can go on with whatever else they were doing. And that's such a perfect example because it's, it's the domesticity of the team that's really interesting, but they exist in this fantastical world that's always breaking through as well. In terms of original Fantastic Four and what, really interested me about this series, um, I'd read it before I read this series, but I read it more closely after reading this series, because I wrote a significant portion of my dissertation on those early Fantastic Four issues, and it definitely did make me see it in a new light, as I suggested in my in my intro. I mean, so that's some of my experience with Fantastic Four. I mean, what about you, Andrew? I know I've talked with Fantastic Four, about Fantastic yeah. Four with you before, and tried to make a case for it. I'll also be making a case no. for you about
2: the vision, but... I, I, I think... <laughs> I think in some ways it's one of those books that's sort of a victim of a lot of different contextual circumstances. Sure. So one, Fantastic Four, was extremely technophilic at a really technophobic time. Uh, so if you're interested in the sciences, this is one of the very few pop culture pieces that would be like, science is not trying to kill you. Science is actually kind of awesome. Uh, and, and it deserves a, a place in sort of science fiction history for that exact purpose. Oh, interesting. Um, and at the same time, I think... Fantastic Four created so many of the patterns and cliches that Marvel Comics still emulates to this day. Yeah, absolutely. That it's hard to give it credit for those many many innovations. Uh, Whereas I think reading it in its original um, um, output, uh, you would have had a much much different experience.
0: Like in particular, like Ben Grimm's character is the blueprint of the Marvel character.
2: Yeah.
0: The I am a tragic, heroic character who is torn by his abilities. That
2: is the Marvel mode. Yeah, I think for me, my my favorite character, and I've already briefly mentioned to Anna that I I might get mad about this with Unslable Molecules, is um, um, Reed. Uh, Reed fascinates me as uh, the scientist who screwed up, got awesome stretchy powers that are really kind of cool, and he used to be a celebrity, uh, and he just absolutely wrecked the life of his best friend. And his best friend is going to be right beside him, always reminding him of that. So when authors play up that tragedy, that kind of Shakespearean element, and that connects to the sort of scientific element in a, a very Mary Shelley kind of way. Uh, I, I find that dynamic fascinating. My experience with the Fantastic Four is mostly 21st century. Like,
0: I, I think I'm one of the few who enjoyed the Claremont run. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was very young yeah. in comics at the time. <laughs> uh, but, I, I mean, my favorite is the Wade and Weirgo. Weirgo, go Yep. <laughs> and uh that is very much very reed centric and almost a rehabilitation of his character in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and but also very much on the idea of these people are a family first and foremost feels kind of at an extreme opposite to unstable molecules to me in a lot of ways but we can talk about whether that works or not
1: well i would say that one of the things is that Unstable Molecules is very specifically in conversation with like the first three issues of Fantastic Four in which after that it gets a little bit more the thing is definitely suicidal in those first three issues it's not as dramatically the case moving forward I mean you get I think it's in the second issue of Fantastic Four you get the other members of the team contemplating what they're going to do about Ben as though they're contemplating they might actually have to I don't know what, kill him, <laughs> like, do something bad. Whereas, you know, you get kind of those things kind of softening, and you get the character of Ben Grimm softening quite a bit. In- do we have to flag every
0: time we use the word thing
2: in this just <laughs> for the pun? To- <laughs> no, we do not. <laughs> I do want to point out one correction of the moderator, that there's actually a perfect Fantastic Four adaptation, but it's called The Incredibles. <laughs> yes. I hate <laughs> The Incredibles. What?
0: Yeah, because I think that it revolves so much around like a almost throwbacks to someone figuring out, oh, this is how you be a dad. Mm. It
2: has the Ayn Rand thing happening pretty hard too. Yes, which is also an issue. I um, have a resentment towards that's it a... A...
1: just because it has one of those things where the you know creators were like, oh no, we never read Fantastic Four. Which never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, come uh, on, that's got to be not true. And then also because Lee Kirby Fantastic Four is excellent, that's kind of just a dickish thing to say. Yep. It's really kind of throwing some really wonderful, groundbreaking comics under the bus.
0: All right, uh, judged on the facial expressions during Andrews' uh, introduction to the Vision, there, I will say that I am personally somewhat of a Vision agnostic, as I again most of my Marvel comics reading happened in the or started in the early two thousands at a point where Vision was out of commission for a long time. So I don't really have much of an opinion on it one way or the other. I sense some strong vision opinions (laughs) in the room. Uh, Let's talk about those.
1: Well, I was just like in physical pain Like hearing Andrew talk about him not being a great character. He is, He does have all of those problems. He's very similar to Martian Manhunter in having that problem with having all of the powers that he sometimes uses and sometimes doesn't, and it's sort of overpowered in that sense, but his, his basic power of sort of phasing and being able to get sort of hard and intangible is like such an excellent power he's so key to an entire sort of 1970s era of Avengers in terms of the meaning of that team being sort of a more um inward looking team you know he was the character that's the Spock-like character that is always reflecting on the nature of humanity and heroism and he's very central in the series for that reason the relationship with Wanda was a very central aspect of that run it was this metaphor for interracial marriage which Mm -hmm. is imperfect Mm -hmm. but you know at the same time was somewhat groundbreaking for the time yeah I just think he's a great character I mean I, I, I understand that you might not have the same connection with him but also I have to say that his costume is amazing. Like, that's, you're just wrong <laughs> about that. The cape, the, the secondary like. color
2: scheme, too. That's very rare. It's very rare. I, I, and
1: he's also been used in some really interesting ways, sort of in the context of his relationship with Wanda over the year. They had a couple of mini series, you know, one which is quite directly sort of an intertext with this series where they get the house in the suburbs and mm-hmm. the house eventually gets burned down by vandals. And yeah, I want to talk more specifically about that intertext, depending on whether we've read it, only because. There's two very different versions of what Vision wants out of sort of a domestic experience or even out of marriage in that earlier series versus versus this one. So the Vision and the Scarlet Witch series are, are from the 1980s. And again, I just find them fascinating because it's this perfect, like, melodramatic romance comic superhero story hybrid, which is partly mm-hmm. what I like about the Vision-Wander romance, but...
2: Actually,
0: I'd like to jump to one of my questions here, because I think it'll get at our issues with the vision, but also connect them back to the Fantastic Four in an interesting way. So Reed Richards and the vision are similar archetypes. They're detached intellectual superheroes who, at least in these works, yes, they are detached superheroes.
2: In these works. okay, Uh,
0: I'm on board. (laughs) <laughs> who position themselves as patriarchs of a family? What differences do you see in them in these books, or elsewhere? Because I think we've got like two opposing views on Reed Richards and the vision here and maybe if we pick at those a bit we can get somewhere.
1: Well first of all when you ask that question it sort of reminded me of like that 1970s vision character and how one of the really things that I thought was really funny about him is that he really isn't intellectual actually. Mm-hmm. I mean I did say that he was kind of the Spock who reflects on humanity but he's actually kind of like a strong guy romantic character. He like actually is not presented as sort of the smart guy in the group at all. That's no. not really I feel like role. that's
0: really different from his more modern interpretations,
1: yeah, yeah, where they've more heavily into into I mean, sort of computer aspect of them. Well,
0: it's kind of like the thing when the Beast joins the Avengers too. Mm-hmm. Like they already have smart guys. Yeah, so, they don't need so he him doesn't. To,
2: he, yeah, he becomes the pothead.
1: Anyway, I always found that really funny about the Vision. I mean, going back to our Hellboy episode, I was talking a bit about Abe Sapien and how he's this fish guy that that's never mm-hmm. relevant to anything <laughs> that he does. And I always sort of like Vision that way too. It sort of made no sense, but I love that it made no sense.
2: Yeah, I think giving all credit, um, I think mostly to Steve Englehart. Who was doing most of the stuff with the vision? The idea of having a synthetic being have a relationship with a human being yeah. in 1982, um, even a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, their the relationship of
1: kind of is an on again, off again thing beginning in like the early 70s. It like goes on a long time.
2: Yeah, I, I do think in terms of his artificialness, um, one of the things that I found that writers kind of do is when they want to play up their relationship aspects, they write him as if he's a human being. Yeah. And, and they really take the Android stuff out of it and then when they want to in other issues explore um, uh, you know questions about you know AI and stuff like that then he starts to talk like a robot again just as yeah, he does right. in Tom King's version yeah. um, maybe a little bit trying to have it both ways but for the most part very clearly emphasizing the synthetic uh, over the human where if you look at like again kind of Englehart Mantlo, Thomas when they're doing relationship vision yeah. he's basically a human being who just happens to have the backstory of being uh, a
1: synthetic being well, I think he's still always got that kind of coldness. but it is interesting what you're bringing up because I definitely want to talk about sexuality in these books. And I mean, I wonder if part of making him seem more human within the context of the relationship is sort of fear of what that <laughs> synthetic sexuality kind right. of means. Mm-hmm. I've certainly tried to get comic book fans talking about that in the past. Yeah, and They don't yeah. want to talk about it. <laughs> no, which i Nothing I
2: want to talk about more, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. As you said, it, it's manifest pretty clearly in, in King's story. There's something disturbing about him having this relationship with Wanda break down to the point where he creates an artificial version of her, yeah, based even, on her thought waves to share a bed with him. Even weirdly with her blessing, but... Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: you say share a bed, but I think it's uh, yeah. worth... Oh, a it's two beds, two beds. Well, that's really important, that the Vision's bed with Wanda is this passionate thing where their clothes are strewn over the floor. It's two separate beds with... His, with Virginia, yeah, and when he
2: creates her, and again, there's also a lot of Mary Virginia. There, there's a lot of Mary Shelley in this. When, when he creates her, he he says to her, "I'd like you to be with me, but you don't have to be. It's your choice." But I mean, she's just been created like whole yeah. cloth. Yeah. What else? Is Where that? else is she going to go? Well,
1: that's what, one of my issues with this series, though, in terms of the characterization of the vision. And I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense that I sort of was more invested in that character than you are, Andrew, in terms of what we got out of the series or didn't, because I think you like it, the Tom King series a little bit better than I do. Mm-hmm. But there's a strain of misogyny like to the vision in the Tom King series that oh, I yeah. find very yeah. out well, of place with that character I've been portrayed previously.
0: I mean, you could very easily describe this series as, the, as if we're looking at it in Shakespearean in terms, of the tragic flaw is that the vision is inflicting his interpretation
2: of family on his family. Well, yeah. you see I would argue a lot of the misogyny in, in this text actually plays up to the atmosphere which is the vision trying to create an ideal of human happiness and which I mean, includes patriarchal culture yeah. well so yeah. I, I think it's sort of um his way of being human he interprets it as I need to be like the man and have this yeah. domestic yeah. servant in my house and all that kind of stuff and also an idealized suburban. Primarily
0: white in the neighborhood we see.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In D.C., yeah, right. Um, And then you factor in the the Stepford Wives comparison that I mentioned. Um, That is a really clear connotation towards gender commentary. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of the text is exploring that in an ironic way. And I think Virginia has a really good arc by the end of this story. Yeah. no, she does. Uh, and sort of ends up being the hero and the mm. martyr, which is not not a common role.
1: Yeah, like to be clear, I'm not suggesting the series is misogynist. I mm-hmm. think the series is clearly a commentary on those things. It's just in terms of the Vision's characterization, yeah. I okay. find a little bit off in terms of he was a character that right? has like is best known for having a long term relationship for a super with a super powered woman. The idea that he would create a woman who is more traditionally domestic to be his wife, who's also has the brain patterns of Wanda, there's a deep psychosis going on there. Yeah. But I don't know that on Vision's side whether that's really dealt with in this series.
2: Yeah, and that psychosis is clearly on King's mind. It's it's yeah. the last page. Yeah. He's he's doing but, it again. Yeah. He hasn't learned anything. This is
0: maybe like are the way that writers keep going into this sphere of robots or even maybe not knowing what to do with Vision, but Vision goes through... I will defer to Anna Hare because she is much more versed in Vision history than I, but Vision has long periods of deactivation yeah. and like, oh, I'm, I'm going to take over the world moments, right?
2: Right.
0: Which is like part and parcel of superhero, but with his in his case, it's framed as a programming flaw rather than a
2: mental... Mm-hmm. And that's there in this text, too. That's yeah, that's, yeah. that's the red herring. Virginia's able to say it was a programming flaw. Which I would argue isn't super comforting, and still, maybe you should put the vision away oh, right. if that's capable of happening. And just one thing to add on to what Anna was saying. Um, if your issue with this, this series is that the character is inconsistent, there's no excuse for that, because, because obviously King has done his homework. He's constantly referencing things from visions past, so he should know better, right?
1: And I I don't think it's an indefensible reading of the vision, just to be clear. I just think it's possibly not my own reading of the vision. And it's Mm -hmm. entirely possible I'm having a way more charitable reading of his character. I mean, kind of those misogynist impulses, I can see being there. You know, in in the previous comics, he's very protective of Wanda to Mm -hmm. a degree that I was sometimes uncomfortable with. And I mean, he does sort of want a certain degree of traditionalism in his relationship. Although again, I I just have a hard time connecting his motives in this series to the vision of the Scarlet Witch series where they have a crazy life and a crazy family, which, you know, is a bit more like a queer family, like Mm -hmm. very sort of to me directly. I mean, as much as it was an interracial marriage thing, I mean, you can read queerness into that as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know that they have this extended family that includes robots and cousins and mutants. And that was such a, wonderful sort of vision of the su- vision of the superhero <laughs> family whereas this one is so much more negative and it just makes me feel like well what happened to vision between then and now and King tries to explain that Mm -hmm. by talking about his trauma which part of his trauma is being deactivated and reactivated he's been reconstructed so many times and and in that sense it's defensible and the issue with him and Wanda sort of gets into some of that and again I think it's a valid reading I just think it's maybe not my favorite reading of his character and I, I do think to a certain extent King is using the character a little bit out of character to tell the story that he wants to tell.
0: Well, you know who is a patriarch character with misogynist overtones that are in the original (laughs) text? I haven't read a lot of the early uh, Fantastic Four comics. I'm relying mainly on... I'll I'll put a plug in here for the podcast Wait What? Which has done their sub-series, The Baxter Building, where they've gone over... Literally every issue of the original Fantastic Four run. Oh, okay. Uh, Reed Richards comes off as pretty misogynistic in a lot of that. <laughs> uh, but Andrew, I, I sensed that you were a little. You wanted to take at my labeling of him as
2: a detached intellectual. Well, okay. Um, in terms of Fantastic Four, absolutely, he's he's definitely the detached intellectual. Um, I, I think my my concern was more with labeling him as somebody who was interested in a patriarchal structure. Oh. I kind of felt in unstable molecules that that was forced upon him by I, social pressure. That's interesting because I like a lot of the
0: early stuff I've read of the Fantastic Four are very much like and Sue do women do the womanly thing. Yeah, which <laughs> is I, as much a reflection of maybe the uh,
2: creative team of the time than anything but... Yeah I think I will I will defer to Anna to, to settle the disagreement <laughs> but, but but how do you feel about um sort of who he is as a character in Unstable Molecules my hunch is he'd rather just be in the lab it's just social pressure he has to have a wife and a girlfriend well
1: yeah
2: i think you could make yes absolutely
0: i mean if anything i would say he is even more detached in Unstable Molecules than he usually is yeah, yeah. that like the big difference between for me between that read and the original read is original read is a lot more forceful, but we kind of get like the yeah. feeling this is the yeah. moment before his big scientific epiphany that gives him confidence.
1: Well I mean oh, one of the Ways that I read Unstable Molecules, so at the end of Unstable Molecules, rather than working together as a family to save the world, they all end up broken and apart and <laughs> possibly never even interacting again. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it, it, you could read it as a very negative sort of interpretation of the story in that sense. And yet I also see it as the superhero story as it originally existed allowed them to be together by... Again, I'll go back to that idea of the queer family. You know, they were allowed yeah. to kind of like... They don't technically live together in the Baxter building, um, but that is very much implied. We, in the original Fantastic Four, there are a couple of references to Johnny and Sue live in the suburbs. No, Sue doesn't live with, with Reed before they're married. You know, yeah. relax. But again, it's also very heavily implied that they kind of live there. You can kind of ignore the suburbs thing which doesn't come up very often but yeah because they don't exist in a superhero universe because they exist in the crappy real world of the late 1950s they're not allowed to have that queer family
0: i mean maybe i'm over reading this but i think it's been a reading that's done of i'm saying word read a lot even though Reed and ben's <laughs> relationship i think it's easy to read in that way as a queer relationship yeah. I mean, there's a line at the very end of this where Reed goes, yeah. I trusted you. Yeah. And it's left very ambiguous whether he's referring to Sue or Ben there. Yeah. And Ben certainly seems way more concerned about Reed's response to walking in on them than he is at comforting Sue at that moment. Yeah, that's
1: interesting. I've always read that as, like, yeah, an intense, like, homo homosocial, sociality that excludes Sue, which, yes, you know... Yes, absolutely. Know right,
2: doing. right, keeps in the dark.
1: But yeah, I mean, certainly, I guess my sort of interpretation of it as a queer family is less direct, though, and more just, like, it's a family of sort of chosen bonds rather oh. than oh, yeah, necessarily, absolutely. you know, blood ties, even though sue and johnny obviously have that tie but it's a family that they choose and that they create and it's certainly a very different type of family than a traditional family which
0: is um, almost the opposite of what we get in unstable molecules that they're trying to fit the trying to like mold it into a traditional family and it doesn't work
1: yeah
2: i would argue in unstable molecules one of the sort of like pivot points between what you were talking about before is more societal pushback yeah do you know what I mean? Because Lee and Kirby are free to portray a world where this dysfunctional family can exist very easily. Unstable Molecules subjects it to that context of 1950s America. And no, like people are going to throw rocks at you on the street if you're walking with your friend kind of thing. So I, I kind of thought it was a way of like um, bringing Fantastic Four's dysfunctional family into a more realistic contemporary for the time context and just basically saying, you know, this couldn't have happened.
1: Yeah, but then I think you get again, with the suggestion of the Vapor Girl comics that both Johnny yeah. and Sue read throughout, there's sort of an, a possibility there of kind of a different way of existing, which is you know existing in this superhero universe, which right. the Vapor Girl comics are very sexist, but They're also suggested to, you know, offer metaphors for Sue's experience as, like, a woman in the late 50s, like, despite their sexism, despite the ways that they objectify women, despite the fact that the comics are based on a comic book drawing neighbor who spies on Sue and has a crush on her.
2: It's literally empowering, right? Yeah. I think that surfaces that that fundamental tension with the original invisible woman. Yeah, she's brutally, but by today's standards, that's a horribly misogynistic character. But through the context of, you know, superhero-dom, I guess. The idea that there could be a girl on the team. I know. Functioning at a high level. Being it it matters.
1: And I mean, I certainly have been, you know, a vocal critic of seuss Dom's characterization over the years and continue to yeah. be. But it does matter, right? She does get to exist in that family, wear the same uniform as everybody else, sometimes with an apron over it, but she still gets <laughs> to go on the missions and be involved. And again, as much as Reed is that patriarchal character, he also wants her there. Yeah. Like, he wants her to be part of the team. He defends her being part of the team. And Although in really so creepy ways of her being the mother of the team. Yeah. But,
0: but yeah,
2: still. Yeah, some, someone's got to
0: do all of that stuff while he's in the line. Yeah,
1: but
2: Yeah, but still. you watch <laughs> Franklin, you know you're the most powerful <laughs> member of the team by a mile. Yeah.
1: But still, it is this sort of—it's a patriarchal sort of view of the family, but it's also a utopian view of the family in which you can still have some of those traditional roles, but in this modified context in which they're less problematic. But partly, they're not as problematic because this universe is magic, and we can do what we want.
2: And that's the real strength of unstable molecules: is just that Mm -hmm. that juxtaposition of reading it against Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four, as you said, for sure.
0: So these are comics, both comics that take narrative stances and techniques that are, I think we can agree, outside typical superhero comics. Uh, I would say they're both kind of heavy-handed in that, but in ways that maybe work in some, well, maybe work in some ways and maybe don't. We have characters just giving Shakespearean soliloquies, Uh, In one moment, and then very long scientific explanations the next in vision. And the culmination of unstable molecules is a crash of comic book writers in the same room with new age hippies and scientists and a disapproving censor. Like, very clearly, let's put all these in a room. Mm -hmm. So is this... Well, is it heavy-handed? And what about comics kind of works with that approach? If if you agree, I guess. If you don't, this will be maybe a shorter question.
1: (laughs) Well, in terms of maybe where some of the heavy-handedness gets problematic in Vision, I mean, how do we feel about sort of the intertexts that are in it uh, in terms of the reference to the Redskins? in terms of references to Shylock, I mean, in terms of trying to make it a story about race with characters who aren't actually raced because they're robots. I mean, I know that there was some conversation about, so the Redskins thing I'm talking about is there's a little sort of a side thing in one of the issues that their previous mascot at their school was the fighting Redskins, I believe, and I see it on an old football And then later, I think in the same issue, when we have Virginia confronting the father and then the father accidentally kills his own son, there's a poster for fighting redskins right behind her, sort of drawing a connection between the two in a very heavy-handed, I would say, way. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, there was some debate about that moment online when that issue first came out about that being appropriative, perhaps, you know, that being perhaps not um, heavy-handed in such a way that it doesn't work. Basically, I mean, you're saying that the visions are like American indigenous people and what right do you have to kind of make that comparison? It relates back to some stuff we were talking about when we talked about um, Young Avengers and New Mutants sort of a few episodes ago, where, where one of the problems with that comparison is that the minorities in this case actually are dangerous. And so when you're comparing, you know, Vision's son to Shylock, it's like, well, one thing is a paranoid fantasy about the danger of Jew- dangers of Jewish people. The other one is about a super-powered robot who does lose control of himself and almost kill a human character.
2: But does he, though? Or is it the societal forces that cause him to lose control?
1: That's yeah. true, but they do have superpowers. So, I mean, the paranoid fantasy of minorities being special, magical, dangerous monstrousness.
2: Right. Is yeah, yeah. And
0: yeah, I, I feel like it's a little different to it doesn't matter. worry about the new group moving into your neighborhood when you witness them murdering someone <laughs> in their backyard. I think we can connect this back to unstable molecules because it goes a little in this direction with uh, Sue and the Jewish neighbor.
1: Right? In what sense?
0: In the sense that uh, Sue, in a very mild way, pushes oh, back yeah. against the other neighbors
2: who oh. are discriminating
0: against
1: her. Oh, right. So she has sort of like an affiliation with the outsider in that I sense. I mean, so I think there's, the there's also going. like an obvious thing that,
2: yeah, it's kind yeah. of the White Savior thing. And where were
1: yeah. Jewish creators. Yeah. Right. And Sturm is Jewish as well. And he's very interested in the Jewish history of comics and Jewish history in general and Jewish myths and fantasies. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. In terms of the heavy-handedness of unstable molecules, I, I think that that's certainly something you could say about it as well. Um, I think it's a little bit less heavy-handed than the vision, um, only because one of the central points that it's making yeah, is sort of the multiplicity that. of history. Yeah. And I so, mean, yeah
0: uh, another, if we stretched uh, unstip all of these puns are complicated to Fantastic Four. Um, <laughs> if you took Fantastic Four, Unstable Molecules and made it into a 12 issue series, yeah. maybe it would get a little heavy handed in its yeah. repetitiveness too. And yeah. I guess yeah. that leads me to a question for Anna. Um, last episode that we did on Castle Waiting and on Finder, I gave sort of a speech ode in praise of long comics. <laughs> um, I think here we've got a good case of the other way that Unstable Molecules is only issues. Uh, is there a value to having these shorter works rather than these 12 or 12 volume maxi series?
1: Well, there's a nice sort of symmetry to it in Unstable Molecule, since it's four characters, four issues. And mm-hmm. it's very well planned. It's very well plotted, very well planned. Yeah. I think the art and the writing work together very successfully. Guy Davis's art is very evocative. He tells a lot with the images that, again, I think resists that heavy handedness in the sense that there's a lot of kind of more open-ended images and stuff here um, Mm. in contrast to something like that Redskins panel from The Vision where, you know, it's a little bit, I I love the art in that series, but there are certain scenes like that that are a little bit more obvious than I think almost anything we get in Unstable Molecules, although it has some moments that are maybe in that ballpark. But um, yeah, I mean, I like both. I mean, I I read a lot of serialized comics, you know, I've read all of these appearances of The Vision and Adventures over like decades, (laughs) not decades of my life, but I've read decades of comics and a month which is an interesting experience in and of itself as you kind of read a lot of superhero comics you might get sort of dissatisfied with that serialized storytelling and that's why a lot of us when we get a little bit older tend to like stop reading the serialized comics and want something like a limited series that's sort of like a short tight dose of nostalgia that's also going to be revisionist or deconstructive in some ways so we can you know it's a little bit more quote-unquote adult I always hated those kind of readings, because, like, no, I'm going to be reading the weekly Marvel comics forever, like, <laughs> you're wrong, but I've been going more and more towards wanting kind of just that, you know, that well-thought-through, short, you know, and intense take on characters. And it characters. kind of goes the
0: other way, too, right? That decades of continuity become almost its own gatekeeping yeah. yeah. force. Yeah. yeah,
2: And, I mean, readers... Just having resolution. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? An ending. A story that ends. Isn't that... My, my word. And then just, I mean... Just coming back to a couple of things you were saying, um, in terms of the artwork, I find it very Daniel Klaus.
1: Yeah. Has yeah a, it it that has
2: that sort of introspective yeah.
1: aesthetic to it, which Lo- is great. Looser lines, though.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Actually, uh, maybe uh, since the subject's been breached, let's let's talk about the art of both of these. Uh, we have Guy Davis on Unstable Molecules. We have Gabriel Hernandez-Walta on Vision. And I'd also like to shout out uh, Mike the De- del mundo who is the cover artist for vision which has some really amazing covers i i think my favorite's probably the one with vision surrounded by the multiple uh scarlet witches and they're just mm. kind of flowing around him these are artists that the art is different i would say from typical comic or superhero fare uh what are they, they contributing to these series
2: well i think Walt is coming in using a really kind of um Unusual stylistic technique. He's got a very, very thick line, Uh uh, but he's combining that with a sort of um almost sketching aesthetic. So, so it looks a little bit raw, but very thick line, which is normally not two things that you see together. So it's finished but unfinished in a really, really kind of weird way, which I think is perfect, showing the the vision and you know constructing this family and trying to construct this life.
1: Well, that might just sort of, if, if I can interject, it might work with the heavy handedness thing, though, too, because it's, it's self consciously heavy handed, and that's almost what the art is conveying the way you're mm-hmm. describing
2: it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Finished, but not finished perfectly, an imperfect imitation, a little bit. And then that, yeah, that kind of speaks yeah. to some of the character yeah. elements. Uh, and it has this really kind of um, alienating effect, which is absolutely pivotal to every scene in this book like it looks slightly unnatural uh, and slightly imposing again with the thick line that he's using so you get that sense of um um, wariness i think that is really necessary in order for the character dynamics to unfold the way that they do you need to be a little afraid of the vision even just subconsciously um, for it to to feel again less heavy-handed so I, i think walt is bringing a lot to this text uh, and it's a very distinctive style, and it's a, a style that you don't see very much of in either Superhero comics or Underground. And I can't think of an obvious comparison.
0: Really deliberate and effective use of the splash page in each of them.
2: Yeah, um, really good use of, um, I forget the word I'm looking for in film studies, where you do an extreme zoom on like a random object. <laughs> um, but, but doing that a lot to create that sense of, um, again, introspection and gaze. Uh, his choice of what to frame reminds me a little bit of Chris Ware, <laughs> Uh, who always has the characters wandering off and staring at random things in order to reflect their internal mental state, uh, and, and I find Walter doing a lot of that again, quite effectively.
1: Well, in comics, we would call that aspect to aspect, right? right.
2: So yeah, like in terms of the transition, of yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in terms of like like mm-hmm. what he's choosing yeah, to yeah. frame, yeah. Uh, it's often unimportant things. Mm-hmm. I, I liked
0: that both uh, series relied really heavily on, to use another McLeod term, uh, I think parallel text and image. that,
1: oh, Yeah, i yeah, really
0: heavy in both of them on this. I Especially like the way in Unstable Molecules, it's really rare for any member of the Fantastic Four to be in the same panel as another member. And it oh, kind of yeah. brings emphasis to that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm <laughs>
1: sure that that is deliberate. Yeah, I mean, that parallel... I, I can see that being an influence of sort of quote-unquote alternative, quote-unquote independent comics sort of on both of these, because you do have, more so in the case of Unstable Molecules, where both of the creators are sort of indie creators primarily, mm-hmm. but are working unusually on a superhero comic, although Guy Davis for a long time did BPRD, which would sort of straddle the line between mm-hmm. sort of popular and independent Right. What I really love about Guy Davis's art in Unstable Molecules is the way, although it's very Guy Davis, he's got a very distinctive style. Um, I, I see references within his style to both Steve Ditko and sort of mm-hmm. earlier Jack Kirby. Sort of again, I said earlier that I think Unstable Molecules is specifically in conversation with maybe the first few issues of Fantastic Four. And after that, Kirby's style gets a little bit cleaner. You know, yeah. his version of The Thing is like sort of more square and less lumpy. Sort of his version of Reed becomes a little bit more square, a little bit more muscular. Yeah, his, version of, <laughs> his version of Johnny doesn't have that like sort of terrified face that he kind of has in the very early issues. So I see it going back to kind of the promise of those early issues in terms of the team at that point being very kind of frightening and different mm-hmm. and becoming a little bit less so very early in the in the process, but, but certainly inspired by some of those styles.
2: The word I was looking for in film is defamiliarization. Oh
1: yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs>
0: So one of the things that I think makes Unstable Molecules a complicated text is the idea that presents itself as this real-life version of the Fantastic Four that the Fantastic Four are based on, and in order to perpetuate that, uh, Sturm includes these, this back matter for each issue that describes its efforts in getting this information together. What does this frame add to the series?
1: Um, Well, it's very clearly inspired by Watchmen in very obvious ways, Um, but I feel like it contributes to that sort of multiplicity of the history that we sort of have mentioned a couple of times, Um, because in the back matter, we get multiple different suggestions of what the real story was or whether it was a real story, which I sort of like, which is doing something slightly different than Watchmen, which is sort of creating this alternate history in this way. This is sort of creating multiple alternate histories. I like. I don't even feel like you need it necessarily, but it sort of just depends whether you're kind of into that kind of thing. For Basically, sure. we get different suggestions of different histories. We sort of get the friend of Johnny has written an autobiography or a memoir um, about his sort of adventures with Johnny growing up and is very convinced that the Fantastic Four comics are a representation of his life. And then we get the yellow newspaper clippings about Johnny and Sue Stirb, who aren't related to... Sturm, the author, but share the same name, which is, again, an interesting complication. Which, which ones am I forgetting? He, he brings up, he makes up sort of all of these intertexts, sort of books about the Fantastic Four, um, books by members of the Fantastic Four, which are really great. And I wish they actually existed because I would like to read so many of them. So, yeah, I mean, what did you feel like, Andrew? Did you feel like it added to the story? I mean, I feel like yeah. it contributes to that theme. I, th-
2: I think it's a framing mechanism. I, yeah. I would compare it to um, if you ever watch a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Uh, or sorry, specifically Fargo or the Fargo TV yeah. series. It says, out of respect for um, the living, the names have all been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the story is being told exactly as it occurred. Yeah. And yeah, that is exactly. a lie. <laughs> like, it's completely <laughs> fictional. But it, it really adds that kind of an engagement to it at almost like a metatextual level. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it. I think it's a nice touch. And I know writers... Love to do that kind of stuff because it's fun for them to flex them. It's like
1: sort of explaining what the thing is about, you know, very, which you know, I think can be one of the limitations of it, but I think he does it well in terms of having a sense of humor about it and kind of making it fun rather than tedious. Yeah, and as you said,
2: it's nicely confusing. You know what I mean? You you can't really (laughs) isolate exactly what's supposed to be what. I
1: admit the first time I read this, you know, what, like 10 years ago now, I was is this real? Like, and <laughs> kind of, that kind of moment and I was like, no, I'm. Yeah. there's no way this is
0: real. I will like put a thumbs up on the idea that it's just enough that I'll admit mm-hmm. I think there's some Watchmen back matter that I've just never read because he's really dense. But yeah. this is like a page at the end? That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just yeah. enough. To... <laughs>
1: That's
2: a good point. It's not yeah. Hollis Mason's autobiography <laughs> or anything. <laughs> Let's
0: talk about sex and gender in the series since i think we've got a lot more to say about both.
1: i've been angling to talk about the representation of super sexuality (laughs) in the vision so (laughs) i know i'm probably more eager to talk about this than others okay well the thing i
2: want to talk about fantastic four (laughs) well good (laughs) good so that'll work (laughs)
1: um okay so what bothers me about the representation of sexuality in the vision is that it's both it does things that I like and that I don't like. I really like the flashback to the, it might be them losing their virginity together, you know, in, in what is it, issue number seven, I think? The one that's about the Wanda flashbacks with Vision. Anyway, so this is a wonderful scene where they're in bed together with their clothes all strewn all over the place. And it's very, like, quiet and awkward, sort of implying that maybe this was the first time that they'd physically gotten together. And then Vision tells this joke about a toaster and then they both laugh. And it's sort of, I think it's a really wonderful scene, both that, It preserves the weirdness of their sexual relationship, Mm -hmm. but I mean that in a positive way, because I have kind of a complaint about sometimes when superheroes are often not allowed to have sex at all, and then when they do, it's ultra-perfect, you know, which is Mm -hmm. ridiculous, because these are people with unusual bodies, unusual powers. The idea that it would be normative is a problem, I think. It's not Mm -hmm. sort of embracing the deviant aspects of those bodies. It's conservativizing those bodies. So I like that scene, the way it has, like, the weirdness that then kind of comes together in kind of humor and and camaraderie. And yet the relationship between Vision and Virginia, and Michael already sort of made a little aside about the significance of her name, and we'd already talked a little bit about how they sleep in separate beds... So there's a scene in Vision where they have a sexual encounter, which is very played as the Vision being very unsure about it and very nervous and very almost kind of freaked out about the encounter, mm-hmm. which you can read that as perhaps he feels guilty about this encounter yeah. because of the nature of how he created her and everything.
2: The yeah, ethics so. of it, that's how I read it.
0: Yeah, and still still yeah. carry something for the Scarlet Witch.
1: But that's just such a larger question that, again, I just don't <laughs> think is dealt with as well as it necessarily could be. And the idea that he'd be shy about sexuality, though, is odd to me. Hmm. Because that kind of bothered me about their relationship. It's, it's pretty much bit.
0: entirely initiated by Virginia. There, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I guess I just had a lot of questions about what his sort of motivations and thinking was there. Because mm-hmm. is this kind of a thing where he wanted a sexless relationship? And is freaked out that she wants it to be different than that? Because it can be, just so many questions. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I really read it just as, as reluctance and, and guilt and shame. And his, I think that's one of the really cool places where he's expressing doubt uh, about yeah. the things that he was undertaking. But I also find it really interesting that um, he's created essentially an artificial version of the girl that he can't get over. Right. And he's keeping her. Mm-hmm. And the text seems to be very aware of that but as much as he looks at her as artificial compared to the real scarlet witch um, i I think that reflects on the way say like the neighbors look at the vision as artificial and unnatural so there he's meant to engage with his own concept of unnaturalness in a kind of circular way that i really like and i I like at the end virginia i don't think virginia loves him do you know what i mean she makes the ultimate sacrifice she martyrs but there was no other options i think virginia was more interested in in dying than ever being, you the dutiful wife.
1: Well, I guess the issue I have with it is just that it's partly getting back to my, you know, criticism of Vision being slightly out of character in the series. Mm-hmm. But I mean, also, if he wants this relationship that's perfect and sexless, that implies that he has feelings about his own sexuality, about sexuality in general, about female sexuality that are deeply misogynist. Which mm-hmm. it bothers me again because yeah. I, mean, I just don't think was, it feels in character for a character that was, you know
0: more progressive. I think you could do yeah. really interesting things with that in terms of his relationship with Ultron, because Ultron is often put in those terms. Right. That he's both like emotionless but also misogynist. And he's the
2: Ultron to Virginia,
0: essentially. He's, he created this synthetic. So that thing would with also his, be something of his mission to set up, But I don't think the series is Playing?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it just depends how much credit you want it, you want to give it or not. And I think that
2: there's some parallels, though. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like the, there's some constructed parallels between his his story of how he brought Virginia to being and his story well, of how Ultron I mean, brought do, him into. Being. We do get yeah, we do get
0: like repeated at very detailed length the dialogue of Ultron bringing him
2: into being, word for word from the original yes. first appearance of the Vision. Technically, the second comic that the Vision appeared where they give his origin.
1: I guess I just find it a little bit disappointing that because Vision and Scarlet Witch are one of the longest running, you know, I would argue actually, despite all of their problems, healthiest superhero romance in some ways. (laughs) I mean, at least in the sense that, I mean, super sex is often treated kind of like prudishly, right? Superheroes aren't allowed to have a sexuality. They were characters that were allowed to have a sexuality. And, you know an interesting sexuality. We don't know what the nature of his sexuality is I'm of the opinion that he probably doesn't have male organs, but he might or he might not You can kind of trace that in some of the images of him over time and kind of try to figure mm, shape-shifter, that out so he He's has a the shapeshifter he at this to. point too, right? He, he, he so. does
2: impregnate Wanda though uh, No, I can actually <laughs> speak to that specifically.
1: The scene where that actually happens is highly suggestive in which She's using her chaos magic to kind of right. stop the end of the world. He's holding her from behind and supporting her. In that moment, she has kind of like a magical explosion. And then there's a scene right after where they're lying down together with kind of smoke in the air, sort of like a postcoital cigarette. So they don't have penetrative sex in the moment of conception.
0: And okay. also demon hands are involved.
1: Yes, um, it's, it's. Uh, again, though, that speaks to kind of like the deviance <laughs> of their sexual relationship, but also right. their comfortableness well, with that deviance. And then this version of the vision is very different.
0: I really loved the flashback scene that follows their scene in bed together, where the rest of the Avengers are in a fight and yeah. they're just making out behind a tree. I do love that. Because that's exactly that, that, that like, like how they were,
1: yeah. you know, it's awful. It are so great. They're always just like kissing them love a fight <laughs> but again that's so like romance and sex positive compared yeah, to mm-hmm. the version of the vision yeah. that we get here and again i don't think it's not a valid choice you can pick out what you want from the character's history and tell that story of the vision i just again for me it's not my favorite version of that character
2: yeah they had established something cool and king seems to have forgotten Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and again given that the rest of superhero comics do romance and sexuality quite badly it's disappointing to me that one of the characters that had the potential to do it a little bit better kind of gets
2: back in that way that makes sense
0: is this a good moment to shift over to unstable molecules which yeah
1: there's lots i mean we
0: can start with the basic point that I think Sue deserves better than anyone in the book Yeah. In, in terms of her partners and what she deserves as a person. Yeah.
1: Well, we brought up earlier that the Sue part of Unstable Molecules mm-hmm. might be the best part. So as much as I admit that it was kind of the best issue, I also am still almost dissatisfied with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. I just still felt like... It, it checks all the boxes to, you know, tell that story about Sue having this tepid feminist awakening and being, you know, put into these sexist roles and everything, which works as a critique of the original comic and all of those things. And yet I still felt distant from her as a character. And I mean, you feel that way from all the characters in yeah. Unstable Molecules, but I guess maybe it just affects me more because I'm looking for that great Sue story that's going to fix it.
2: Yeah. No, I actually... And that's
1: asking a lot from this book, more. which is not... And again, not a time, right? For Yeah.
2: I think for me, I actually really like that they don't give her that yeah, I've overcome yeah. the patriarchy no, moment. No, I
1: know, because that's what I mean. I don't know what I'm expecting, because yeah. I don't necessarily want that. But at the same time, I did feel like her subjectivity was a little bit shallow.
0: It feels a lot like she doesn't get to make like a big choice like Reed and Johnny do. Yeah, right. that, that's true. She's pretty she's drunk when she yeah. hooks up with... Ben, and the rest of the issue is about people making choices in response to her rather than her making around
1: yeah which you know in the most recent got a book chapter about fantastic four where i write about sue as the character that you write stories upon and never about and <sighs> I, I don't know that i really felt like unstable molecules broke that totally even though i love the sue section a lot and i i, I feel like i might be expecting too much from it
2: i think that's a cool point of intersection with. Um... Um vision. Again, you, you have to read into Virginia a lot to make yeah. this happen. But, yeah. but again, that idea of um, what, let's call it domestic servitude. Yeah. and being trapped in that world with those expectations and with no other options around it, and how that frustration is um, chaotic and confusing uh, rather than something that is a clear objective that one can overcome through force of will. I like that.
1: No, uh, I, I know. that was kind of I, cool. I, and again, I think that that's a fair treatment of Sue in the context of unstable molecules, that there isn't an opportunity for her to truly escape this world because how and could there be that wasn't going to come until later?
0: It is modeling after the first few issues, mm-hmm. but it yeah. still feels un- unsatisfying.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I people often—not often, but from time to time—ask me whether I'd ever be interested in writing comic books. Whether that's ever something I'm interested in pursuing. And the one I want to write is something that's focused on Sue Storm. That's I would love, like, that I come
0: <laughs> like to they've got—they've had those two-in-one series with a thing. Put, put Sue in there. I mean, not not yes. just put her in there. Make her the lead of that yeah. title. Make Sue as the intersection of the Marvel universe.
2: I'm pretty sure that Marvel, like, um, um paraphernalia, routinely refers to her as the Marvel mom. Do they not? Yes. Yeah.
1: I'm gonna get into a whole tangent on Sue if we start going. But <laughs> my, my thing with her is that as much as I've I've taught Fantastic Four before, and you know, it's really easy to be like. Her powers are sexist because they put her outside of the battle. They allow her to keep her beauty in the context of a fight. They're non-physical. They're protecting, therefore, motherly powers. And yet, I love her power set. It's my favorite superhero power set. It's a great power set. set. No question. It's the power set that I would want to have because... As a woman, I have those impulses. I do want to protect people. I don't want to punch them. I want to keep them safe. I don't want to hurt them. So it's hard to get a balance with Sue where you're kind of accepting the positiveness of her being sort of that protective motherly figure, but not having her sidelined in the story because that's a stereotype inescapably. And I've never read a version of her that I felt did that balance justice. Well, this is
2: maybe one of my critiques of Fantastic Four as, like, a a publishing industry thing, there have been a lot of, like, great Fantastic Four runs written by, frankly, well-known misogynistic authors. Yeah. Uh, I can't... You know what I mean? Like, they've never really given it to somebody who I think could do
0: something. I'm reasonably sure this happened at some point, but I can't even name, like, a female author Fantastic Four run. Anna, could you give us our scholarly context for the episode?
1: Yes. um, We're not doing a book this week. We're just doing kind of an essay recap review. And the essay is... Just Men in Tights, Rewriting Silver Age Comics in an Era of Multiplicity by Henry Jenkins. And it's from the contemporary comic book superhero edited by Angela De Dalianis from 2008. So Henry Jenkins is someone who's been a really formative influence on me as a pop culture scholar, or ACA fan, as Jenkins taught me to say. Along with Camille Bacon-Smith's book Enterprise and Women about Star Trek fan fiction, Jenkins' seminal book Textual Poachers, which is about fanish behavior and creative practices more generally, helped me see there might be a place for my passions within academia. I also really respect Jenkins as someone who practices what he preaches in terms of taking pop culture and popular desires seriously and making those serious discussions popularly accessible. Case in point, Though my copy of the essay I'm reviewing today is currently locked inside a filing cabinet, locked in t- inside a storage locker in a city I don't currently live in, Jenkins was kind enough to post the full text of the essay on his blog, Confessions of an Akafan, which I encourage all of you to check out. So on to the essay itself. Jenkins opens the essay with, with a provocative suggestion. What if comic scholars were to stop insisting that American comics are more than just stories of men and tights, and admit that this medium, in this context, is in fact dominated by a single genre? namely the superhero genre. This is something I think about often, especially when I'm complaining about analyses of Alison Bechdel's work that see the fact of overlapping panels as revolutionary, while seemingly unaware of the fact that the much-reviled Rob Liefeld used to do that all the time. I'm of the opinion that we can understand the comics medium better when we read superhero comics in conversation with so-called independent comics. According to Jenkins, accepting the dominance of the superhero genre might help turn genre theory on its head. Most genres establish themselves in relation to other competing genres. But because the superhero genre is so dominant within American comics, difference, Jenkins argues, is felt much more powerfully within the genre than between competing genres and genre mixing is the norm. The superhero genre, writes Jenkins, seems especially adept at absorbing and reworking other genres. Jenkins applies this theory to the history of superheroes and comic book production in the U.S., discussing briefly how superheroes absorbed things like the romance genre and the horror genre in the wake of the 1954 Comics Code, and how this ability ability to absorb contributed to the superhero genre's eventual dominance, which began in earnest in the late 1950s. He also argues that the superhero genre's defining ability to mix genres can compel us to rethink the common organization of superhero comic books into discrete ages. The Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, etc. Genres, and especially the superhero genre, are less linear than that. Jenkins does argue, however, that there's been an important shift in superhero comics publishing within the last couple of decades. Today, writes Jenkins, Comics have entered a period where principles of multiplicity are felt at least as powerfully as those of continuity. Under this new system, readers may consume multiple versions of the same franchise, each with different conceptions of the character, different understandings of their, their relationships with the secondary figures, different moral perspectives, exploring different moments in their lives, and so forth. This multiplicity isn't completely new, but rather exaggerates the generic instability that's defined the superhero genre from the beginning. Jenkins works through the operation implications of this multiplicity through brief, close readings of three recent-ish, at this point, limited series, JLA Year One, written by Mark Wade, DC The New Frontier by Darwin Cook, and Unstable Molecules by Jane Sturm and Gar Davis, which we've been discussing today, obviously. These three texts work really well in conversation. They illustrate the push and pull of conservative and rebellious motives in modern or revisionist superhero comics, which sell nostalgia alongside deconstruction, and often absorb their own critiques back into reifications of iconic characters or iconic brands. Overall, I think this is a great essay that remains very relevant and could be very usefully extended into the further multiplicity engendered by the ever-increasing expansion of superheroes into film, television, and elsewhere.
0: That wraps up our discussion. What we have left to do then are our recommendations, our thanks, and our next episode. Uh, I'll start things off with the recommendations... Uh, kind of building on the idea of superhero families that don't quite fit. I'm going to recommend Noble Causes by Jay Ferber. The premise here is that a superhero fathers a number of illegitimate children who learn about their powers after his death when his widow puts, together, puts them together as a superhero team. It's kind of ridiculous, kind of in the vein of Invincible, and doesn't have as much death as what we're reading, but it's fun.
2: Uh, I will recommend Kurt Busick's uh, uh, Marvels with Alex Ross, uh, which was a ground-level perspective on key events from Marvel Comics history, including the coming of Galactus, arguably the greatest Fantastic Four story ever told.
1: I am going to, not very surprisingly, recommend the Vision of the Scarlet Witch (laughs) miniseries. There there were two of them, one in 1982 by Bill Madlow and one volume two from 1985 by Steve Englehart. I think the Englehart one is a little bit better, but I love both of them dearly. They're a perfect mix of romance and super heroics with being the one of the few times a Vision and Scarlet Witch got to be truly happy in the comics, which if you're a fan of either character is sort of nice to see. And I'll do our thanks if you don't mind. We also want to thank the Communication, Pop Culture, Film Department at Brock University for letting us use their
2: space today. Oh, and we should also thank um, St. Jerome's University for letting us have some equipment that we brought with us. Well, are much appreciated. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Next
0: episode, we've got two food-based comics uh, with Relish by Lucy Nisley and Delicious in Dungeon by Raya Kui.